0: Welcome to the Engineering Voices Podcast, the podcast by and about engineers and their profession. Here we explore how engineers invent, innovate, and inspire with contributions on design, innovation, engineering education, and practice, as well as careers for engineers and those aspiring to one day become one. I'm your host, Alex Fries. And today's guest is Emmanuel Giglio. He's the big VP for digital supply chain surgery for Johnson & Johnson, and we're thrilled to have him on the Engineering Voices Podcast. Welcome, Emmanuel. Awesome! Thank you for having me. Emmanuel and I, we go way back to over twenty some years. We met at RPI. Uh, as part yeah. of the sort of the engineering uh, gang back then, and uh, yeah. just as by some of my previous podcast uh, uh, podcastees, um, we've everybody's gone in their own direction and has done really, really well. And in particular, uh, Emmanuel has been has been um, in a in a specific field for a very long time. And I think that's going to be quite interesting. So maybe uh, before we get into the field and talk a little bit about the biomedical engineering side and the robotic side that you're working on, um, can you just like give us a maybe a, just a quick blurb over the last twenty years what you've been doing and, and sort of how you've been progressing through through the different companies and the company Johnson Johnson uh, that you work for right now?
1: Yeah, definitely. So uh, I graduated from RPI. Uh, and went on to uh, University of Delaware to do a master's in engineering because uh, I was really interested in composite materials and lightweight structures. Delaware had a big program in that space. Um, So I I went there for my master's and then I went to work in aerospace for three years, uh, essentially in a manufacturing site building um, adhesives and lightweight composites for uh, aerospace applications primarily. And uh, while I was there, I was going to school at night for an MBA. And uh, after, you know, a couple of semesters at night, I decided to go full time. So I actually uh, in 2000 uh, quit my job, moved to Boston and went to MIT where I did a master's in engineering and uh, an MBA. So it's a program called the Leaders for Global Operations, um, which is a dual degree program, 24 months. Uh, which really tries to do a business degree with a focus on manufacturing and operations more than the traditional finance or marketing, which are typical. And from there in 2012, I got hired by J&J and I've been, sorry, in 2002, I got hired by J&J and I've been here, you know, 18 years. Um, and, you know, really I spent my career kind of in between supply chain and R&D is probably the best way to describe it, always in our med device business. So j has three big businesses, pharma, consumer, and med device. And I joined in the very traditional ethic on med device surgical business uh, and have been kind of in that arena ever since. Uh, and my roles have been a combination of Uh, I'll call it kind of engineering, uh, program leadership. Then I went into R&D for a while. Uh, Then I moved to a manufacturing site. So I spent four years in a site as the engineering manager and the plant manager. And from there, came back to corporate and did a bunch of what I'll call somewhere in between tech transfer and product development roles. So it was really launching new products, but from the supply chain side. So think of it as the last you know, 18 months of the product development cycle to launch and then obviously scaling uh, for volume and profitability. And for the last year, I moved to this role in digital surgery, which is really around uh, kind of digitizing the operating room. So when you have surgery, it's still very much, I'll call it an analog world. In other words, there's lots of devices, lots of people, lots of knowledge, but very little data you can truly analyze. because very little of what is being done is being recorded and very few data points are available after surgery. So surgeons still learn primarily from papers in the New England Journal of Medicine or whatever, or from lectures from other doctors or from talking to other doctors, because there's really this kind of gap in the amount of data that you can get out of surgery. And so what we're trying to do is kind of develop products that will not just help surgeons do surgery, but also get data so that we can analyze the data and help them be better surgeons. And that's really the idea of digital surgery. And we have some products in the market. We're looking for others and, and we're neither the leaders nor the first ones in the field. So there's others in the field. Um, but uh, but that's what I've been doing for the last
0: uh, 13, 14 months. That's super interesting. You've And in, in looking back at your progression over these years, there seems to be a bit of a, you um, sort of a segue right if you if you started off with your focus on composite materials on the aerospace side and then and then that uh MIT degree i think the MBA and the masters and then you kind of went pretty much in another way which was more the 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 well obviously the biomedical engineering side of things and now even evolving to what i'd call robotics right what and that's a very different um overall direction you know and what what triggered that change back then what made you why did you think you had to take uh, get an mba and then what what created that shift to go from an aerospace sort of centric thinking to more of the the, the health field or the the, the biomedical field
1: Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, when I went into my first job, I really was interested in composites. And uh, so I I looked for a job in that field and I ended up in a manufacturing site in Maryland, like I said, making composite materials and adhesives for aerospace. Um, What I learned, I think, in my first three years working in the site was that uh, there was a lot of opportunity in bringing together technical knowledge with Um, I'll call it kind of good basic business knowledge, right? So understanding basic finance, understanding how products are sold, understanding kind of how you decide how to market a product and why, why launch a product in a certain market versus another. And really, this came from the fact that I felt that, you know, as an engineer, you always ran into some kind of barrier. You could develop amazing technology, but that didn't mean it was going to be successful, right? So there's a lot more that goes into a successful product than just great technology. And there certainly are products that have, you know, been successful purely because they're great technology. But in general, like you have to, like a number of things have to come together. And so I really got interested in understanding Kind of the product development process, big picture overall, not just the technology part, but like I said, the business part. And um, and so I decided to you know go to uh, go back to school. Uh, and I think the, the what stood out in the two years at MIT, and which is really this program, is really trying to focus on global operations. It was actually started in the late '90s uh, by a group of American companies who were seeing really competition emerged from primarily Japan Uh, and there was a big study done at MIT that culminated in a book called uh, the machine that changed the world which is really a study about lean manufacturing and what you know what was interesting is you know it started as a program that was very US manufacturing centered in the late 90s and now it's very much a global program and it's much less about manufacturing and much more about operations right and so there's definitely been an evolution Um, But I, you know, and so while the initial partners were people like Ford and General Motors, now there's partners for like, you know, Amazon, which doesn't really make anything, but it has amazing operations, right, and distribution and and certainly is bringing uh, supply chain into the digital world. So um, I joined this program and really the idea was kind of to bring the two together, but my roots were always in engineering and in manufacturing and I I wanted to keep them and that's why the, the program fit for me. And then I think the shift to healthcare was more, uh, I think I'll call it luck than anything else in the sense that, you know, recruiting is what it is. And graduating in 2002 was not too far from the dot-com bubble uh, bursting. And so, you know, I, uh, I looked for opportunities and I had a few opportunities, but J&J really attracted me for a couple of reasons. First of all, they still have had at the time and still have a huge manufacturing footprint, right? So that's, that was important. I wanted to work in, uh, in supply chain. The second part of it was lots of people outside of j j said good things about J&J, and that's really what impressed me the most, right? So obviously the recruiter is going to tell you we're the greatest company ever, come work for us. But when you talk to others outside of the company and you hear really positive feedback, I think that was really what made my decision very easy, and I'm, you know, obviously very happy I made that decision. Um, and then when I got into healthcare, I think. What I learned quickly is that in the medical device space, there's a fabulous intersection of engineering and I'll call it like just healthcare and medical knowledge, right? So what is beautiful about the medical device business is, you know, it really requires engineers to take the unmet need of the surgeon, whatever they're trying to do, and, and then figure out how can technology help them do it, right? And so... It can be anything from simple like closing a wound and even closing a wound. Uh, there's, you know, technology of absorbable polymers that absorb over time. There's needle technology to make sure you don't cause trauma to the tissue as you're closing the wound. So there's a lot of technology that goes into medical devices. And I think it's a great space to bring Engineers and healthcare providers together, whether it's doctors, nurses, uh, and really develop new products. And I think when you bring the two together, is when you really get great innovation. And that's you know, that's what I've the field I've been in for the last 18 years in various obviously roles.
0: So, let me scroll back a little bit. You mentioned yeah. something that I think many uh, current engineering students or junior engineers are going to find really interesting. You said that J and J had you got a lot of like why J and J, and you had a lot of positive feedback. Can you talk a little bit more about that how to pick a company from or what information yeah. to get from positive feedback and how to leverage that to make a good choice for your first or second or whatever third joy, uh, a third job
1: Definitely. So, you know, I think it's a big step. And the challenge, of course, is that you go through a few interviews. You only meet a few people. So your sample size is small. Um, and, you know, you're everybody's telling you the side of the story they want you to hear. So, I, you know, I guess the two advi- the two pieces of advice I would give is, first of all, try to talk to people in the company that are not really just the recruiters and the people interviewing you. So in my case, I actually... You know, I interviewed uh, not at the Ethicon site, which at the time or still is in Somerville, New Jersey. So I actually asked to go visit the site. And so they organized basically like a one day visit where I actually was no longer an interview at that point. I actually had the offer by then. It was more me learning and meeting people. So I actually met like, you know, the engineers. I walked around on the floor of the manufacturing site and that helped kind of get a feel of the culture of the environment, um, and so on. And the second thing I think you should do is try to talk to people that you know that somehow know the company. And that's not always easy, but certainly if you work, if you're you know, interviewing with Fortune 500 companies or with big companies or maybe companies in your geographical area, you may be able to find people because then you'll get somewhat of an unbiased opinion. In the case of j j you know, it's such a big company that you seem to always run into somebody that knows somebody that it's worked there or has some relationship to them. And so that's what happened to me. I mean, I told people, oh, I have an offer from J&J and I always got like these positive, oh, they're a great company or oh, they really take good care of their people. Or, you know, they have the cradle and they really like, you know, put uh, patients and uh, healthcare providers first before everything else. So you know that that those were the type of things that really uh, pushed me uh, in that direction i think the other last point i'll make is you know probably the single most important thing at least surveys seem to, seems to always bring there and i think my experience is the same is your boss or your supervisor will be the major force in your job satisfaction and so Really trying to get to know who your boss is going to be a little better is probably time well invested as you're making a decision between you know two different jobs or a specific job or whatever.
0: Do You think uh, social media plays a role in sort of digging around to see if a company is a good match at this point, or networking in general? LinkedIn, you know, some of those big platforms that um, that we use. I think. Uh, yeah. Do you think that's uh those are good avenues to also explore a little bit more?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know. Social media is a little bit of a double-edged sword. I think using it to get contacts is certainly fantastic. Like LinkedIn, uh, I think is an amazing tool. Uh, I think it also allows you to kind of read up on things and see what people post. And obviously they tend to post what's hot with the company what the company is doing. Um, And so I think from a information gathering and contacts is a really strong tool. Um, I think, you know, in general, you know, social media has a tendency to blow things out of proportion in both directions, good and bad. And so I would say to also be cautious. Right. Just because it's on social media doesn't mean it's true. And just because it's on social media doesn't mean it's going to be your experience. Right. So but I think as a tool, to, you know, I'll say it this way. It's one data point among many. And it's definitely a very useful data point. So we definitely should not be overlooked. It just shouldn't be the only source of truth.
0: Oh, yeah. No, that's that's good advice. Uh, let's go back a little further in your uh, statements a, a little while ago. And that's business and the uh, relationship with business and technology. And um, sort of, you know, I, I talked to a lot of students and, and advisees, and we discussed things that could be of interest for an engineer to take, even at the bachelor's level. And I very often recommend, you know, a, a, a course in business here and there is a, is a good thing to have. Yeah. Do you think... Um, Your standard engineering program, and I'm not, you know, picking any in particular, but I think most bachelors of of, of, uh, science and engineering and mechanical engineering, for example, or in biomedical engineering, they all do have a very similar um, course composition, which is very often focused on the technology and on the physical principles and very often you know, the entrepreneurial side or the business side is treated and, and you can pick a tech elective or an elective uh, yeah. to get a little bit of an insight in that. Do you think that's lacking? Do you Would you think that it would be a good idea to incorporate a little bit more? Um, and I'm sure you hire a lot, of, a lot of people too, and they may not be as business savvy as somebody who's gone through some formal business training. Is that something uh, you think that's of value at the undergraduate level? I
1: mean, I, I think undergraduates don't have to be experts in you know accounting or marketing or finance or anything like this. But I think what would be useful is to get a sense of how decisions are made in business. So for example, understanding the product development process and understanding, you know, what drives a company to make an investment in a product versus not, or to invest in a startup versus not. And so you know, it's, it's really a multifactorial problem. And I think just having the understanding of, you know, I could develop great technology, but it requires certain things in order to be successful. Or I, when I develop a product, I need to keep in mind, you know, how are people going to sell this? And so, you know, that I think would be very, very helpful for people to understand. I think, you know, a lot of the, I'll call it, detailed knowledge of other things. First of all, there will be other people in the company that will know it, right? So you have a finance person that will do the financial analysis. But I think you have to be able to talk to them intelligently and mm-hmm. kind of understand where they're coming from. And I think that's that's what makes kind of the average engineer great is you don't just know technology, but you can also speak to all the other functions because you know, the new product development is a team sport. There's going to be a team of people from every kind of functional area i mean when we develop products medical devices teams have you know 15 20 departments sometimes more involved because there's a high level of specialized groups that get involved and there's a lot of people on the team right so you have to be able to understand what they do and incorporate them in the product development process. So I think it would be very helpful to understand what I call the big picture, without you know having to dig, dig too deep. And then you know digging deep is something that can be done later, either on your own, uh, it can be done in graduate school. And honestly, most businesses that are big enough to have this type of setup will offer training. Like we have even you know courses on you know finance for non-financial managers and that kind of thing. So, uh, but definitely understanding the big picture is critical because it will it will affect the ability of an engineer to be a great engineer. One of the things that shocked me the most when you go to work is you think that you have to be a great engineer, but it's not the technical thing that makes the great engineer. It's the ability to communicate. It's the ability to document. It's the ability to work with others. Those are just as big, if not bigger, right? It's bigger. So that's, what's important.
0: That's. I was just going to go there with, with teamwork. Uh, I, yeah. I One of the things that I teach is the capstone sequence. So we very often have well, it's a team sport, capstone, uh, a yep. year long um, course with, you know, all sorts of projects that need to be developed in a team. And I think um, the focus very often is uh, on, on coming to a solution or generating a solution to a technical challenge and really not understanding that the the, the team dynamics is really a major learning outcome of this specific scenario and in, in, in preparation for industry. So, yeah. Uh, teamwork in my view teamwork and communication those are the two things that uh, that that i talk a lot about is is what makes you progress i think industry at this point expects a sound technical background it's it's if it says mechanical engineering on the degree then you you it's it's a given that you know your statics dynamics thermal etc cetera, etc cetera. Right. um what's not necessarily always a given and that's what really differentiates people is the the fact that they can communicate and work well in a team and have have, as you said, you know, some exposure maybe to the the, the organizational behavioral aspects that uh, make people progress. Is that would you agree to that? Absolutely,
1: I think that's exactly right. And I think uh, you know the um, the amount. Of, I mean, nothing happens in business by yourself, right? Unless you're kind of a consultant or something. So I think uh, um, it's really critical that people. Get that experience to work in team and understand that you know they're gonna need to succeed through others, and that doesn't mean that you just the people you supervise. So you know a lot of organizations you'll work with are matrix organizations, and so it'll be a lot about influencing others to agree to what you're doing and to go in the direction you think you should go in. So um, you know I think you know even courses like negotiation and things like that, all those soft skills are gonna be you know fundamental. Um, And on the engineering side, I think what I would add to what you said is understanding a sound scientific methodology is the most important thing, because no matter how hard you try, you just won't get to business and say, oh, I'm going to pull out my statics and dynamics book and solve the problem that I've been given. It's probably going to be very different than that. Right. So you're going to have to apply a methodology. You won't be able to just rely on the course you took. The course you took has to educate you to have a really sound scientific background, the fundamentals, and a methodology to address it. And then, you know, with that, you can solve any problem.
0: Yeah. How about global skills? You're in a very large multi, um, well, global company, and you yourself, I think, are from Italy, right? And yep. uh, what, what? Talk a little bit about the global skills that, and uh, in, in, in a in a in a context like that, where you do have teams in different parts of the world, uh, is that something? Um, that you find, um, you know, is, is, is an important factor. And I'm kind of relating that to things like study abroad experiences, which I always endorse. I'm always, I'm, I'm also, you know, from Germany originally yep. and I've, I've, I've experienced this, the, the global side of engineering. And I've also experienced that sometimes things fall apart when people cannot um, in, in a teamwork scenario, when you cannot um sort of understand that people from other cultures have different priorities um makes creates challenges and hurdles so uh, do you want to maybe address that a little bit in in the context of your of your uh, um of Johnson and Johnson
1: Absolutely so you know we I think J and many many large corporations operate on a global basis and with a global footprint right so uh we we don't do almost anything that is kind of United States based or Europe based. It's really everything is very global. There are specifics, of course, but I think in general we're a global company, and you will find yourself working on global teams uh, and developing products that are meant to be not just for the U.S. market or the you know Italian or German market, but for you know China and everywhere else. So. I think it's critical. I would say um, it also speaks a little bit to, you know, the need to have a lot of diversity on teams. uh, Right. So if you you know, one of the things we're very passionate about at J&J is you don't want to have a team of only North American born and raised engineers, uh, you know, from the Northeast developing global products. Right. That's probably not going to work perfectly. Just like when we go (laughs) to surgeons, we don't always go to surgeons that are on the same you know, geographical area or so on. In fact, most of the products we do, if they're going to be global have to have um, customer input that is global, right? So you have to go to a Chinese surgeon to get the input. You have to go to a European surgeon and you will come up with a lot of differences in the field of surgery, which is the one I know, but I'm sure in others around, you know, even though we, we all do, you know, Bypass procedures, they're not done exactly the same. They're not done in the same way. Hospital techniques are different. The way surgeons are trained is different. And so you need that input. So, you know, globalization is here and it's real. And, and, you know, it has to be taken into account. I think um, anything that anybody can do to get exposed to that is is a positive. So, whether it's, you know, going on an international assignment, um, learning a new language, all of it is is a major plus. At JJ, you know, we do specifically, we have a program called the International Development Program where we send people to, for example, one of my engineering managers in the US went to be the engineering manager in our plant in Hamburg, Germany for two and a half years. And she was running the site there, uh, the engineering team. Um, and, you know, I, I think you learn more from that than from anything else you can do, right? I mean, just to being dropped into a different culture, a different language, um, you know, is is definitely a huge learning experience, but, but I definitely think it's a big part of, of, of business today. And if you're gonna pick um, certain fields, right? Most fields tend to have um, global hubs, right? So there will be a lot of influence. For example, now that I work in digital, I find myself working a lot more with Japan uh, for example, than I ever have before, because of course, when you get into electronics, you know they're the 800-pound gorilla. So a lot of our suppliers are there, and so on. So um, I do think, like you know, there's very little that happens today that is just you know focused on one country. So definitely a plus, plus. Um, and I would encourage everybody to kind of try to expand their horizons because that's that's the world we live in.
0: Cool. Yeah, I that totally resonates with me. How about? So nuts and bolts what's your day to day look like you're uh, obviously there's an evolution within if you're an engineer and i mean you're you you've, you've with your MBA you're on, on the managerial side you kind of evolve into that but do you want to maybe talk a little bit about how how you know what do you do every day is it is it do you still get to play with fun electronics toys or is it mostly you know, directing, organizing meetings, and and uh, organizing. Um, you know, the managerial side is probably the the, the bigger side for your day to day. How and and maybe adding to that is how does that progression work in um, if you're in a in a in, in if you're in, if you start off as a junior engineer at J and J, for example, what's that evolution um, in terms of you know the the balance between what we call traditional engineering, you know, doing computer modeling and, and find that element or, you know, you yeah. name it versus the, the project management side of things?
1: Yeah. So uh, maybe I'll start with what I do now just very briefly. But but let's talk about that because that I think is more probably more the reality for students. So when uh, today, you know, I would say my role is to manage a team of about um, 250 uh, associates and we do a little bit of manufacturing and a little bit of product development right so we're, we're a lot of what we're doing is new product development because we're at the beginning of this digital journey so we do manufacturing but we also do a lot of product development so working very closely with r and I would characterize my job as a lot of reviews uh, like so I sit in a lot of meetings to review plans of projects uh, and a lot of getting the resources uh and the funding for projects and then deciding what do we do and what don't we do so i think one of the things maybe people don't appreciate is there is always way more projects and way more ideas than there is engineers and money to do them and (laughs) somebody's got to make that decision and you have to have a way to make that decision. you know it can't just be oh i feel like that's a good idea like so you have to quantify you know probability of success, cost, resources, and so on. So I think that's a lot of what I spend my time doing is making sure we're spending our money and our talent on the right things. Um, So I think that's one. And the other is looking at uh, kind of more the three to five year horizon, right? So not just what's happening next three to six months, but it's really like, how are we planning for the future? Um, And then probably the biggest and by far the most important part and enjoyable part of my job is people development, right? So I always say I don't do anything. Uh, You know, my team does everything. Like, you know, I I add zero value, right? (laughs) The standpoint of, you know, am I going to be designing something, writing a protocol, a completion report? Uh, You know, I sign a lot of documents, but that's about it. So um, I, I think finding the right talent, deciding, you know, which one of this group of engineers is gonna be the next engineering manager, which one is gonna be the engineering director, who has the potential to replace me so that I can do something else. Like all those are a huge part of what I do. Um, And that comes in many forms. Like we have a very structured process around succession planning, performance evaluation, compensation planning, you know, emerging talent processes. So obviously we're a big company, we have to be structured. You can't manage 130,000 people just randomly. Um, But I think a lot of it also comes down to just talking to people. So it's, you know, as I, as people do these project reviews to me, as I get to meet them is really understanding what are their capabilities? What do they like to do? And that helps me Mm -hmm. understand, like, how do I um, you know, how do I help them progress in their career? And, and I also ask them a lot, what do you want to do? And that's actually maybe a difficult question to answer for most engineers is when you ask them, what do you want to do in your career? That's not, most people doesn't roll off the top of their tongue. Oh, this is what I want to do. So I think those are important discussions that we have. So that's my, uh, my day. Um, but, um, but I think as an engineer, it's uh, it's uh, when you start, it's a little bit different. So I, you know, we bring engineers in at all levels, of course. But when we hire engineers lately, a lot of engineers come through what we call, and I'm speaking supply chain, but there's similar programs for other departments. What we call the gold program, which is the global operations leadership development program, um, and that's really a rotational program where we hire out of college undergraduates, and for the first two years. They do two and a half years, they do three rotations in three different parts of the businesses, all in supply chain, because this is a operations program, but in different parts of the businesses. And one of the three rotations we always try to do in the manufacturing side, preferably supervising people. Um, and, and we do it because I think it gets them to understand not just one part of the business, but get a bigger picture and also helps them decide like, what do I want to do? Because the business is so big. Like when I joined J&J, there were parts of the business I didn't even know existed. Like, you know, we have a whole professional education arm that I had no idea what it was. And it's basically there to teach doctors. Um, So I think it's good for people. Like, I like the idea of this rotational program for them to learn. Um, And so outside of the rotational program, you know typically engineers will work on a specific product Uh, or program and it can be something like launching a new product and then within that launch they will get assigned a specific part of the product launch so a typical thing in supply chain you will get to work on you know designing and building a new piece of equipment to increase uh capacity increase manufacturing output so um a great example i can give you is you know my first business i worked in was wound closure where we make sutures and needles so um uh sutures to close wounds in surgery we make about 600 million a year so as you can imagine output is really critical um so you know a lot of the time was spent on how do we develop better equipment to increase throughput and so that's a typical work that an engineer will do so there's a little bit of I call industrial engineering in it of looking at throughputs and output but a lot of mechanical engineering and how do i design equipment And always going back to our discussion about teamwork, always working with others and not just others in J&J. Most of the time it's vendors, right? Most companies will not build their own equipment. So it's finding the right vendor and then working with the vendor to make sure they have the right specification. And then deciding how do we do factory acceptance testing? What are the tests we should do in order to bring the piece of equipment into the plant? And then how do we validate? Because once you have it, it needs to run, you know, as flawlessly as possible. So you need to go through a validation process. Uh, And then how do you train the operators so that they can use them? So that would be a typical kind of role that an engineer would have coming into supply chain. Um, and, And again, I think they will really pull on their foundational methodologies of like you know you probably never teach them how to do process validation on a needles piece of equipment in school right but if you understand kind of process variability and statistical process control and cpks and ppks that's kind of the foundation and then you can like build on that
0: what what kind of engineers do you hire in your specific branch yeah so i would say all kinds in
1: general. I mean, there's not one specific. I think in um, certain businesses tend to lean more heavily on certain specialties just because of the nature. So for example, in sutures, we have a lot of absorbable polymers and polymer technology. So chemical engineering tends to be big, but we equally hire mechanical engineers, industrial engineers, biomedical engineers. Um, Where I am now in digital, obviously a little bit more computer science and double E's, but again, lots of mechanical engineers, uh, biomedical engineers. So I I do think um, it's most of our, I would say 75% of our jobs will say, you know, that we're looking for some type of engineering degree. And either they we will list all the big ones like mechanical or chemical or, you know, electrical, or we will simply say an engineering degree. Um, Just because we'll leave it open to, um, you know, to the individual and, and, you know, it depends, you know, what experience they have and what they've done. So I think uh, pretty flexible on the, I'll say the, which kind of engineering. Uh, Is it, is
0: it, what's the growth? Are you currently hiring? Is it, is it, are you hiring more and more or, you know, what's the, what's the one to five year plan for, um, um, for your field in terms of growth and needing more people?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think medtech in general is definitely growing. Uh, Of course, as as you think about it, there are areas that grow more than others. There are certainly pockets of uh, strength, Um, but I would say in general, you know, healthcare is going to be an area of where technology is going to be critical. As I said, we still do a lot of. Uh, surgeries in a very antiquated fashion and that's not a criticism it's just the reality of like how we do surgery and so I think bringing uh, new technology to the operating room and there's still a lot of unmet needs right we still have a lot of people that you know not only die of, of, of diseases but in addition you know it's also about quality of life right so if you look at our orthopedics business it's not so much that you'll die because your knee hurts but can we get you back to you know playing soccer playing basketball playing tennis playing golf that's the that's the success criteria we have so um, you know we we're, I would say we're generally always hiring somewhere it's a little bit hard to say specifically this moment I think you know in, in my business in the digital surgery business we're definitely hiring a lot in the Bay Area. Um, for engineers because we are kind of in growth mode. Um, I think in the manufacturing sites, we tend to hire quite a bit um, from the standpoint of that it tends to be a role that people take for a few years and then move on. So I think there's there's a good kind of uh, change of talent that goes on there so uh so in general i think there's always open positions and i speak a lot of medtech but of course you know at j&j pharma is huge it's more than half our company um and there's big investments going on in pharma uh all over the world but especially in the u.s and europe around new technologies and uh and engineers play a big role, right? The manufacturing sites that make the pharmaceuticals are big, complicated, and there's a lot of technology that goes in there. Um, so I think, in general, you know, even just beyond med tech, there's there's definitely opportunity um, in healthcare in general.
0: Let me let me pick up that pharma topic. It's a uh, it, today is the it's November twenty fifth, twenty twenty, and as we you know we're all um, painfully aware is that we have this pandemic going on right now and, um, and, uh, vaccinations are certainly the solution, uh, to getting out of this gridlock that the world is under with this, with this COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, and I think that's a, and we, we've had announcement of several vaccines, I think three so far, Moderna, um, I forget the others, but, uh, three vaccines that, that have, uh, Different levels of complexity when it comes to um, the supply chain in a, in a sense, right? And the yep. and the logistics associated with it. So maybe just kind of the, to, to close up as do you want to talk a little bit about J and J has a vaccine under development, I believe. Yep. Maybe you can comment a little bit on the status of that and sort of bring in your um your assessment of. You know what? What are the differences when it comes to the supply chain and the logistics involved, and and in in generating these very large quantities of of vaccines, and then actually bringing them to distributing them worldwide, and um, maybe some of the differences. I mean, we've got the RNA, mRNA, messenger RNA vaccines that uh, need extreme cooling versus um, the more traditional type that may be more robust. Do you want to you know share your insights?
1: Yeah, so I'll start by making the first disclaimer, which is this is definitely not my uh, my space or my specialty. So I know very little. Uh, but I will say, you know, obviously, we, we all we need more than one vaccine and we need them as soon as possible. So, you know, it's great news that AstraZeneca and Moderna and Pfizer are, you know, very far along their clinical trials. Uh, at j we also have had historically a, a vaccine business, so we didn't start this, uh, you know, just because of COVID-19, but uh, we have a vaccine business that has led us to the approval of an Ebola vaccine recently, we're working on an HIV vaccine and we're pretty far along so it's a business that we've had and, and building on this um, kind of uh, technology of which we have, like I said, done large clinical studies in other for other diseases. So the base technology being similar, we are comfortable with the safety of it. Uh, we started a very large trial of about 60,000 patients um, to allow our COVID-19 vaccine candidate. Uh, clearly we, we don't have results yet. So uh, so we don't know how effective it's gonna be. Um, our vaccine is, is a little bit different from Moderna's or Pfizer's um, from a supply chain perspective. It doesn't require the level of refrigeration. As far as scaling, you know, in the world, we're going to need, you know, five, six, seven billion doses. So we need all of these to succeed and we need all of us to make as much as we can. Um, we certainly have been working in parallel to the development, which is probably not typical in scaling the manufacturing. And we have done that both with our own sites, but also with um, partnering with companies like Catalan and others that do large scale Uh, pharmaceutical manufacturing, because there is no way that on our own, we could, you know, just produce billions of doses. Um, Our our vaccine, like I say, it is one dose. So that's if it works under one dose, uh, it's certainly an advantage, right? Because you need uh, less. It's also an advantage for the patient because they only have to go once. Uh, We are doing kind of a secondary study with a second shot to understand the long-term effectiveness of the vaccine. immunization, right? Because of course, all these metrics that we see of 90% effective or 92, they're all on relatively short endpoints. I believe it's somewhere around 30 days uh, or even shorter. So we, we need, you know, this immunization to last. So there's a lot of variables that we still need to understand is, you know, how much dose do you need a booster? How long does it protect you? And those are all things we have to document with data and science, right? So there's no, there's no, uh, There's no quick answer. We have to do the studies. We have to go through the process and that's exactly what we're doing. So um, I think at the end, you know, hopefully they all work, but uh, because we need them all. But uh, but I think we're going through our process and uh, the supply chains will scale as soon and as fast as, you know, the results come. And we're doing all the preparation we can. Logistically, you know, the good news is that, you know, the pharmaceutical industry is already a global industry and, you know, there is already an infrastructure in place to distribute drugs all over the world. There is an infrastructure in place. For example, the flu vaccine is distributed every year, right? You know, but certainly, um, you know, this will be kind of a different scale, uh, and and we have to be prepared. Um, but yeah, so so that's where we are with the uh, with the vaccine, and obviously, we hope uh, we hope to get results and positive results as well. That's kind of where we are
0: right now. It's a relief to hear that all these things are coming online and that there's a perspective out of this um, this pandemic. Okay, uh, maybe in closing, do you want to just throw out a few pieces of advice? What would you tell you know your your recently graduated mechanical engineer or or any engineer or your senior student? Any any piece of advice that you know for the next five years, what they should do, what they shouldn't do, what they should focus on. Um, Yeah,
1: so I mean, it kind of sounds a little bit like cliche, but I guess I'll start with the most obvious one, which is to do a little bit of, you know, make sure that what you're doing is what you want to do and that you enjoy it. Um, I think often we tend to look at, you know, where the world is going and say, oh, I need to study computer science because that's the future or, you know, whatever you pick one, Uh, you know, make sure it's your passion. Uh, You know, I started at J&J in what is probably you know, I think uh, we can say one of the oldest and most traditional businesses. I don't think we would think of a suture as amazingly innovative or, you know, the latest cutting technology. But for me, it was great. I I mean, it was amazing. I enjoyed it. Um, You know, we developed sutures with which we, that you can close without tying knots. So even in sutures, you know, innovation is possible, Uh, but I would say, you know, do something that you truly like and not that you kind of feel you have to do. I I think it's a cliche, but I think it's important to to just remind people. Um, I I would say the only other thing I could say is try to be very balanced, Um, you know, Nobody succeeds by only being an amazing technical person or only being a great marketing person or a manager. Um, So I think try to bring some balance to your education. I think that's really valuable. And that doesn't mean you have to take courses specifically, but you can do that by like reading on your own, right. By, I mean, it wasn't there when you and I were in college, Alex, but now, you know, just the Khan Academy and all these tools are amazing. I personally use the Khan Academy to figure out how the internet works. Cause some, I'm curious, no idea how this whole thing works. Right? So, um, and so I, I, just think that's, that's really important to bring balance to to kind of your education, to what you do. Um, I remember in college, we always, always used to argue, why do we have to take some course in social yeah. sciences or humanities, right? That was a, and, you know, maybe that specific course is something you will never know. But I think, you know, again, having a little balance is important. Um, and the last thing, I guess I said it before, but I'll say because it's really close to my heart is, you know, work hard to get the best boss. I'm a big believer that if you have a good boss, you will be extremely happy as an employee, no matter what field you're in and no matter what you're asked to do. And if you have a bad boss, you could be in your dream field and it won't be an ex- pleasant experience. So um, I think... Your career, your happiness, will depend largely on who your supervisor is, and so pick them carefully and think about it carefully because they make uh, they make a big difference in your career and in your
0: life. That's outstanding advice. Thank you so much for Thank sharing for all me. your your great thoughts here, and um, we'll be talking to you soon. Super. Thank you, Alex. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Engineering Voices. As always, you can find more information on the show notes of this podcast. And if you enjoyed this week's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a recommendation or comment. Thank you for listening in. This is Alex Rees signing off until next time on Engineering Voices.